Go ahead and find with me 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Welcome to our monthly Q&A night. I was keeping track of what number Q&A night it was, and I stopped doing that after about number 17 or something. So uh, we've done a few dozen of these, and uh, I've gotten nothing but good feedback from y'all. keep getting good and interesting questions from y'all. And just uh, another reminder, my inbox is always open. Um, If you have a question, a Bible question, uh, you are more than welcome to, uh, to submit that. Uh, my only stipulation is please write it down. Just Don't just tell me something and expect me to remember it and all of that. Always best to write it down and get that to me. Two questions tonight. Question number one. When Paul said study to show yourself approved, what was he telling us to study if the New Testament has not, had not been written yet? The New Testament had not been written yet. So we'll uh, explain what's, what's, uh, the question is getting at. So 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15 is being referenced here. But specifically the King James Version uh, of that verse, which says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 The question is getting at the fact that as of the writing of these words, the New Testament is still in the process of being written and had not been compiled into what we call the New Testament. So in that case, the question is asking, what were they busy studying. Now, there's going to be uh, two parts to my answer. Number one, I want to get uh, a little bit technical with the verse. I want to ask, what verb is Paul using in 2 Timothy 2.15? And then the second part of my answer will be, what were the first century Christians busy reading before the completion of the New Testament? So, here's how we break it down. Before answering the question head on, I think it's important to give some nuance to the verse because While I'm certain Paul wanted Timothy and all his readers to study the Bible, he says so in many other passages, it's actually not exactly what he's telling them to do in this verse. So the Greek word translated study in the Old King James Version is the Greek word I've put up here, uh, spaudazo. Again, I don't know if I'm saying that right. But according to Mounts' complete expository dictionary of of Old and New Testament words, it's a verb that means to strive to give one's best effort to do something. It's a word found a number of times in the New Testament, and it's always always instructive to see how that word is used in other places. It's a major clue to how it's probably being used in another place. So Paul says he endeavored, that's the verb, or made every effort to return to Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2.17. He said, I endeavored, I made every effort. It's about expending effort. Ephesians 4 and verse 3, Paul tells them, be eager or strive to maintain the unity of the church. That's how the verb is translated there. Strive, be eager. Galatians 2.10 recounts how uh, Paul was asked on his journeys to make sure he remembers the poor. And he says this, it was the very thing I was eager to do. That's the word, eager. That's how it's translated. This is Hebrews 4 and verse 11. Let us therefore strive. That's the word. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall short by some sort of disobedience, by the same sort of disobedience. It's about our strenuous effort to meet our eternal goal. So the sense of the word here, when he says, spodazo, to show yourself approved, the sense of the word is to expend all of one's effort, to eagerly strive after something, to devote your energy to a certain end. 
So when Paul encourages Timothy to spodazo toward the goal of presenting himself to God as an approved worker, what he's telling him to do is to expend every effort, to eagerly strive, to devote all of himself and his energy to his work with the goal of being able to stand before God without shame and with God's approval. This is reflected in pretty much every other translation, this sort of overarching effort Timothy is to expend. English Standard Version, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. New American Standard and New King James translate it identically. Be diligent, they say. Be diligent to present yourself approved by God. This is uh, the New Living Translation, which is more of a paraphrase, but it puts it this way. Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Work hard. So do your best, be diligent, work hard. So why does the King James Version say study to show thyself approved unto God? Is study a bad translation? And my answer is no, it's not a bad translation, but it is an old translation. Um, according to the, uh, to the online etymological dictionary, um, our English word study comes from a Latin root, <clears throat> which originally meant to push, is what that root means, to push. There are Latin words with that root like studiare or studium, words which mean to push forward, to be diligent, to strive after something. It seems that the, uh, the King James Version uses the word study in this older sense. This is just what the word study meant about 400 years ago in the English language, which doesn't have specific reference to devoting one's mind to a book, which is what we mean by that word now, to study. But it's a more general sense of devoting one's whole self to a goal, not just devoting your mind to an academic subject, but devoting your whole self to a goal. So to study in, in uh, 400-year-old English, to study is a, is a much more broad, broad idea. What Paul is instructing Timothy to do, point all your efforts in the direction of God. Take pains to present yourself before God as one who has been tested and found to be genuine in his teaching and his conduct. It's an all-encompassing encouragement that's very similar to statements Paul says to Timothy often. 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you save both yourself and your hearers. It's a general admonition to expend every effort. Now, of course, that all-encompassing encouragement is to study in the modern sense, to study God's Word. Any preacher worth his salt studies in that sense, devotes his mind to the book. But, but to study in the older sense takes that head knowledge and it works it into every crevice of his character in life. That's what Paul really is asking Timothy to do. So, my initial answer to the question is to point out that study doesn't mean today what it used to mean. And what he's really telling him to do with this verse is to spend every effort. Now, that's sort of a, a little trick to not answer the question, uh, to point out the verse doesn't exactly mean that. Nevertheless, I'm going to answer the question because it's a good question anyway. So here's the question. What were first century Christians studying before the New Testament was penned and compiled? So we have that broader understanding of study. Let's go ahead and answer that original question. Paul and the New Testament writers did expect Christians to be reading and studying. But what exactly were they reading and studying? And the answer is, short answer, the Old Testament is what they were studying. Maybe it's worth noting here, um, Old and New Testament are not biblical labels. Old and New Testament, as labels for the first part of your Bible and the second part of your Bible, those are not biblical 
labels. Now, Old and New Covenant, those are biblical terms used to refer to two different dispensations of time, two different ways in which God has related to his people. But Old New Testament as parts of, a, of Scripture is not a biblical description. Do you know what they call the Old Testament within the New Testament? You know what they call it? They call it Scripture. They call it the Word of God. This is uh, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 14. We're right here in the neighborhood. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The sacred writings Timothy grew up with and needs to keep devoting himself to, what he's referring to here are the books Genesis through Malachi, what we call the Old Testament. Paul says these writings are able to make us wise for salvation. These are scripture which are breathed out by God and which are always profitable. These are writings which can and should be used to teach, reprove, correct, train in righteousness. These writings help make the man of God complete, equipping him for every good work. Now, of course, the description here of the Old Testament scriptures are every bit as true for what came to be called the New Testament. Even the very words Paul is writing here, this description would apply to them as well. But I just want to notice, even New Testament Christians like Timothy and Paul were devoted students of the Old Testament who might even recoil to hear them called old as if they were obsolete. To them, they're scripture. To them, they're the words breathed out by God for our training. Acts 17 and verse 11, which we read this morning, tells us that the Berean Christians were more noble than those in Thessalonica for this reason, because of the eagerness with which they listened to Paul, and because, quote, they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What scriptures were they examining? At this point, there may be, there may not be a single New Testament book completed yet. At the most, there might be an epistle or two, but they probably didn't even have their hands on it yet. The Gospels almost certainly had not been written as of Acts 17. The scriptures they're examining daily are Genesis through Malachi. Paul was preaching Jesus to them as a fulfillment of Israel's scriptures, the one to whom everything pointed They're going back to those stories of Abraham and Moses and David to see if Jesus really does make sense of all of this. They're going back to the oracles of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel to see if Jesus really is the culmination of God's promises. Those are the scriptures. They're going back examining daily to see if these things are so. Jesus himself says that's exactly what people should be doing with the Old Testament. This is John 5 and verse 46. He says, if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he, Moses, wrote of me. For he wrote of me. Philip uses the prophet Isaiah to bring the Ethiopian eunuch to a good understanding of Jesus to the point of being baptized and becoming a disciple in Acts chapter 8. He didn't even have Acts 2 and verse 38. He used Isaiah, used Isaiah, and was able to preach Jesus to him and save him. When Jesus encounters the men on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke, Luke 24 and verse 27 says this, that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He went to the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, 
Moses and the prophets, and from them showed his own identity. Read any sermon preached in the book of Acts, you'll find the apostles connecting Jesus to Scripture. Jesus in the Psalms, Jesus in Isaiah, Jesus in Joel, Jesus in Genesis. I could go all day. So just here's a, just a reminder. I heard the best way I've heard it put is from, uh, from Brother Jeff Wilson who gave this, put it this way. He said, the covenant has changed, but the canon has not. The covenant has changed, but the canon, the, uh, the, the collection of books we call scripture, the canon has not. Genesis through Malachi might not apply to us in exactly the same way as they did to ancient Israelites. But Genesis through Malachi are still scripture. They are still the words of God. They still reveal the God who does not change. They reveal the God who instructs us in holiness. And those books still preach Jesus and the gospel. And one of the surest signs someone does not understand the New Testament is if they don't think they need the Old Testament. That's one of the surest signs you don't know the New Testament. Because that New Testament holds up every word of the Old Testament as inspired scripture, crucial to understanding God, understanding His Son, understanding His purposes and His plans. So what were the first century Christians studying before the New Testament was compiled? Short answer is the Old Testament. Number two, changing gears. What does the rainbow symbolize? We're in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 now. <clears throat> so in Genesis chapter 9, we are uh, after the great flood of Noah, and the waters have receded. Noah and his family and all the animals exit the ark. First thing Noah does is build an altar and sacrifice um, of every clean animal in chapter 8 and verse 20. And in response to that, God makes a covenant with Noah. God wants to enter into a new kind of relationship with Noah and with his descendants and really with the world from here on for a a very long time. God wants to initiate a new covenant. This is Genesis 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it, the bow, shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So God says, I want to establish a covenant with you, Noah. Not just you, though, also your offspring. And uh, even all the animals who've come off the ark. The covenant is for them, too. Now, the content of the covenant is verse 11. This is what the covenant is. God's end of the deal, so to speak. God says that never again 
shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's what God is promising in this covenant. Now, here's, I think, part of what's happening. God has just told Noah and his family this in verse 7. Be fruitful and multiply. Team the earth and multiply it. He has just given them that instruction. And I think part of what this covenant is doing is giving them assurance that they can go out and do that. Go repopulate the earth. Go have lots of kids and grandkids and, 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 and grow the earth population again and do this in confidence that God is not going to get mad and press the reset button on creation like he just got done doing. There's not going to be another worldwide flood the second sin gets a little too much. That's part of it, that they can go out in confidence in verse 7 and do that. God also gives a sign of this covenant, a reminder for Noah and everyone else after him, but, but really it's God who says is going to be reminded by this sign. And this is the sign again, verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God says when he sees the bow in the clouds, he will remember the covenant that he made. So this is the question, what does this symbolize exactly? Now, we know what it means. We know what it reminds God of, that he's not going to destroy the earth. But is there something more to it than that? Maybe the first way I'll approach it is this. Why a rainbow? Why a bow? Is that shape supposed to remind us of something? Is this just a sort of random association? You know, it could have just as easily been a picture of a sword in the sky or a picture of a, of a cow in the sky. And then also this, and along with that, that reminds you of this promise, I won't destroy the earth with a flood again. Is it just a random association God is making? Or is there a symbolism to this shape? Well, to state the obvious... A rainbow is a combination of two words, rain and bow. The rain describes the circumstances under which it appears. The bow describes the shape of it, as in a bow that shoots arrows, a weapon of war. Is there significance to that shape and the fact that God hangs it up uh, whenever, uh, whenever there's rain? Well, let me first say something, a uh, little side note. Let me first say the fact that we can explain a rainbow scientifically takes away nothing from the truth of the story or possible symbolism. You know, we can explain it scientifically. The rainbow is, as I understand it, a refraction of light through water, which reveals a color spectrum of light. Whenever water does that under certain circumstances, light, light, and, and water. And I say that the fact that we can explain it scientifically doesn't take away from its symbolism whatsoever, because there are sort of some closed-minded skeptical people that say, that stories like this are disproved because of our knowledge of science. You know, they just sort of show how backwards all those old ancient people were who actually believed the Bible. Superstition. They used to think that's what a rainbow was, but now we know better. Now we know it's just a refraction of light. I just want to point out that's a nonsense, that's a nonsense thing to say. There's a, there's a really great passage that makes the point, a great, a great story. In the Chronicles of Narnia, my favorite volume is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a, boy, a boy from Earth who goes to Narnia named Eustace. And if you know anything about Eustace in that story, he's, uh, he's a brat and he's annoying. Okay, so that's part of the story. So Eustace goes to an island and he meets there a retired star. Uh, a star that is set for the last time and is now retired to this island. He's able to speak to the star. It's a, it's a magical place. It's a fictional story. But when Eustace meets this star... 
he says to him in his kind of smart aleck way, he says to him, you know, in our world, a star is just a huge ball of flaming gas. Because he's like, well, how am I talking to a star? In our world, a star is just a huge ball of flaming gas. And the star replies this way, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is. It's only what it is made of. It's not what a star is, a huge ball of flaming gas. That's just what it is made of. My point is, a scientific explanation and a symbolic explanation are not mutually exclusive. They're just two kinds of descriptions. I can put it this way. It's like being asked, I walk up, I'm holding something in my hand, and you say, Drew, what are you holding? And I say, I'm holding a Valentine's gift for my wife. And you say, no, it's not. That's not what it is. What you're holding are cocoa beans that were shelled and roasted and ground and kneaded together with milk and sugar and then cooled until they hardened into these one-inch chocolates. That's what you're holding, right? Have they really disproved my answer that I'm holding a Valentine's gift? It's two kinds of answers, two descriptions of the same thing. To describe what something is made of is not the same thing as describing what something is or what its meaning is. Those are two kinds of explanations. And so it is with the rainbow. We know what a rainbow is made of. We can describe it scientifically. Frankly, that's the boring explanation of it. The real question is, what is a rainbow? What is it? What does it mean? That's what we're getting at in this story. So this is not totally explicit in the text. But reading what other people have written, there there is a pretty common interpretation of what's going on here. I'll share it with you. and It's plausible to me. The most common interpretation of what the symbol means is that it is an image of God ceasing from his warfare against sinful humanity. It is an image of God ceasing from his warfare against sinful humanity. In essence, what he is showing in the rainbow is that he has hung up his bow. He has hung up this instrument of war. The storm and flood in this this understanding could be seen as his arrows that he hurls from heaven with his bow. But after this, as he pledges not to do this again, He hangs up his bow. I think there's some precedent for this. Psalm 18 describes God wielding his bow and shooting arrows of rain and lightning at his enemies. This is an image in the Bible. Psalm 18 and verse 13. The Lord thundered in the heavens. The Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. And so God is described uh, here as, as using his bow to shoot the storm, to shoot lightning at his enemies. So, if we're sort of running with this, also think of this. As you see a rainbow in the sky, what direction is the bow pointed in? What direction is the bow pointed in? Is it pointed at the earth, or is it pointed away from the earth? As you think about it, if you're shooting from the curve, the arrow's going to go up. It makes sense to me that if the bow is a sign of a covenant... And what that covenant says is that God will not destroy the earth through a worldwide flood, then the bow might well symbolize that very thing. God setting down that means of judgment, pointing it away from the earth. That's, a, that's as good as explanation as I as I've found. I find that very, very plausible. There's also another another thing about this. I think there's a big picture here. Um, God's covenant with Noah, I think, says a little bit more than just No more worldwide floods. I mean, that is what it says. But I think there's a deeper thing going on here also. I'll share what uh, one one man has said. He said, The heart of the covenant with creation through Noah is the preservation of creation 
and a divine commitment to maintain the regular rhythms of created life until the very end. I'll point you in chapter 8 and verse 22. God says, as long as the earth endures, as long as the earth endures, this covenant will be, will be in effect. So, in the flood, God dealt with the evil of the earth by destroying all of that evil at once. That's how God dealt with evil in leading up to the flood in Noah's day. In his covenant with Noah after the flood, his promises basically from now until the very end, until, until the earth, as long as the earth endures, from now until the very end, the promise is I am going to handle and mitigate evil in ways other than worldwide destruction. That I am not going to press a reset button on the whole thing. We're not going to do it that way again. There's going to be other ways in which evil is handled and mitigated in the meantime. If you read around this, God has some pretty specific ways in which that's going to happen. I think there's even a hint of the gospel in the covenant with Noah here. Because what God really wants to do is not just wipe all sinners off the face of the earth like he had to do in Noah's day. Of course, what God really wants to do and what he's going to begin doing in earnest beginning in Genesis 12 with Abraham is to redeem sinners and to save them from his judgment as he saved Noah and his family. I think what the covenant with Noah means is that from now on, God is going to have more forbearance with sinners. He's not going to just wipe them all off the face of the earth. He's going to have more forbearance with them that they may repent. Again, quoting, God determines to maintain cosmic order until the very end, thus creating room for his work of redemption as he seeks to reconcile wayward humanity with himself. He's going to give a little more leeway that he might bring about the means of of redemption and reconciliation through the family of Abraham. Let me ask you to turn to one more passage before we're done. This is 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. So while God has laid down his bow, uh, promising to never flood the earth again, God did not say he would never judge sin on a worldwide scale again. God did not say that. He promised not to do it through a flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Peter makes this point exactly. This is 2 Peter 3 and verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and, by, and, and that by, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept in, uh, until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Peter is addressing here uh, people in his day who scoffed at the idea of the return of Jesus and Judgment Day. It's not a new thing, by the way. People were scoffing at that idea in Peter's day. They, they thought 
that the passing of time somehow made the promises of God less likely to come true. The fact that one day passed meant it was a little less likely to happen. Another day, that means less. And just goes on. More time goes by, it means God isn't going to do anything. Each day Jesus doesn't return somehow makes it less likely that he will return. Well, Peter points out how silly that is in verse 8 when he talks about how God, how God reckons time, how God relates to time. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as one day. The simple passing of time means nothing about the promises of God. But because they don't think Jesus is returning, Peter says, Verse 3, he says, they're going to be busy following their own sinful desires. They're going to be scoffing. They're going to be doing what they want, thinking they'll never have to answer for anything because after all, Jesus keeps not coming back and I can keep doing what I want. But he also says they overlook this fact, that this has happened before. This has happened before. People, there was a time when people were going about their business, following their own sinful desires. And as more and more people did that, the world became a worse and worse place. Finally, when the world had become an utterly unredeemable place, God acted to judge that world. Verses 6 and 7 say, remind us, well, you know, God formed the world out of water, meaning he has complete command over water. It means water does whatever God tells it to. So when God decided to judge the world with water, the water jumped into action. And you can read the story of Noah yourself. He pointed his bow at the sinful earth. He deluged that earth with water, and every sinner on that earth perished. That's what happened. Well, at the end of that story, God hung up his bow. He pledged to never flood the earth again. He pledged to allow the earth to continue on without worldwide judgment until the very end. He planned to forbear with sinners, and he talks about that forbearance in a few verses here. But Peter says that there is coming a day That after every effort has been made to save, after everyone who will gets on this new ark, in verse 9, after that, and after the chances have run out, God will one day act decisively once again to judge, once and for all. No flood, no water. God made a promise. He kept his promise. He hung up that bow. No water. But verse 7 says there's another tool at his disposal, something else that jumps and acts exactly as he says, and that is fire, by the same word. Heaven and earth that now exists are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Peter's question is, are you ready for that day? God made his covenant with Noah, signified by the rainbow, to give all creation an opportunity to repent before judgment. He's not going to just press the reset button before the end and say, forget it, I'm done with all these people. He's got a lot of forbearance. He's waiting for us to be saved. But he says one day the opportunities will be all spent And God will act to judge once and for all, not with water, but with fire. And we'll either be ready for that or we won't. And so the question is, are you ready for that day? Don't take for granted that just because God hasn't come back any time in the recent past that he's not coming back at all. The passing of time means nothing about the promises of God. So maybe there's someone here that needs to come and get ready for that day. God's hung up his bow. He's waiting for you to repent. Will you come and accept his grace, accept his forbearance as we stand and sing? What will you do with Jesus? Christ comes to you, and you must give an answer for something you must do. What shall it be? What shall it be? What shall your answer be? What will you do?